Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have four movies to review for you. Uh, two of them are brand new in theaters. One of them is actually a short film that's available for streaming. And the last one is actually a docuseries, a three-part docuseries. And while I don't review TV shows on this, uh, on this show, I do actually make an exception with limited miniseries. And this docuseries that I'm about to review for you, A, is that good, or at least good enough to uh, mention on my show, and B, it's something through which I technically lived. So I, I've got a little bit of a bias there, admittedly. But I'm going to start with the films that have been released in theaters. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Pope's Exorcist, which is a movie, frankly, I wasn't exactly looking forward to seeing, mainly because I think that movies that have the word exorcist in the title are inevitably going to be compared to the 1973 horror classic. And most of the time, with a few exceptions, there are some movies that sort of go against the plot expectation that I would have from a movie with exorcist in the title. So the Pope's exorcist is a movie that a lot of people are probably going to be comparing to the exorcist. And I would probably say mainly unfavorably, but I gave this movie a chance anyway. It actually is based on a true story. Unlike the 1973 movie, the 1973 movie was based on a book, but this movie is actually based on real life events. There are, actually is an exorcist in the Vatican. For decades, that exorcist was named Gabriel Amorth. And in this movie, he's, play, he's played by Russell Crowe. And Gabriel Amorth, about whom I didn't know anything going into this movie, is or was the Vatican's leading exorcist. And it's, it's interesting that the Vatican would have an exorcist, let alone many exorcists, but uh, I, I don't exactly know why the Vatican would have them on hand. And this movie didn't really explain why that was, but Mr. or Exorcist Amorth investigates the possession of a child and uncovers a conspiracy the Vatican had tried to keep secret. And you would think that the conspiracy that the Vatican would try to keep secret would be something that would deviate this movie from the other films about exorcists. And it seems like it tries to do so, but it doesn't really achieve that. Russell Crowe, I think, does a serviceable job here as uh, Father G Gabriel Amorth. But the movie doesn't really seem to want to delve into the true part of Father Amorth's exorcism anecdotes and instead just goes for sort of the cliche horror and action tropes. And that is certainly true with the child that the father tries to ultimately exorcise. So when we first meet him, he goes to Italy and, and exercises demons out of a man. And he does this actually in a pretty interesting way by taking the spirit of Satan out of the man and in, into a pig, after which Father Am Amorth shoots him with a shotgun. 
uh, shoots the pig with a shotgun, that is, which I honestly hadn't seen in a movie before. So I was thinking that's a really good way to uh, exercise the demons out of a human. But apparently this incident gets him in trouble with a church tribunal since he acted without permission from superiors, which almost seems like a very convenient plot point. But then after this, the Pope assigns him to visit a possessed little boy named Henry, who is an American boy who lives with his mother, Julia, and his rebellious teenage sister, Amy, in a castle in Spain. And apparently, this mother, Julia, and this is in 1987, inherits this castle in Spain from her late husband. And this rebellious teenage sister doesn't want to be there, and the little boy is mute. But he gets possessed by Satan, which leads this uh, father, Amorth, to visit him in that castle in Spain. And honestly, when the boy, Henry, um, who's played by a young actor named Peter D'Souza Fahoni, is possessed, it's supposed to be scary, but it ends up almost being funny to the point... He's, he ends up being adorable, almost to the point of being funny. And there is this laughable CGI that's used on Peter D'Souza Vejoni that makes him look like a cross between Mick Jagger and Gollum. So when he's speaking vicariously through the devil, it's, it's a lot of swearing, probably even more swearing than Linda Blair did when she was possessed by the devil in her respective movie. But... When Linda Blair was possessed by the devil in The Exorcist, it was scary then, and it's still really scary to watch now. Here, it just comes off as both cute, almost to a laughable point, as well as being very cliche. And Russell Crowe, as I said, does well with, with his role. And there's also a younger priest he brings with him named Father Esquibel, who is played by Danielle Zovato, and I think the two of them actually work together pretty well, but once they try to exercise the demons out of this young kid, it's not really scary what happens. He swears a lot, he makes some promises about certain dead relatives of both the priest as well as the uh, his family being in hell, and he tries to play some tricks that almost seem way too cliche so much to the point that this movie takes place in 1987 and nobody, including the American family seems to think this is what happened in the exorcist because that almost seems exactly like what did happen in that movie. And the conspiracy that comes out of the Catholic church through the Pope, who's only known in this movie as the Pope, and he's played by Franco Nero, is quite laughable. And it doesn't really serve the greater purpose of this film either. And in fact, in 1987, the Pope was Pope John Paul II. But the movie seems to pull a punch when it seems to identify the Pope. Not only does Franco Nero not look or act very much like Pope John Paul II, but he almost seems to play the Pope in sort of a snidely whiplash kind of way rather than being like Pope John Paul II. And I think this movie was very afraid to stick it to Pope John Paul II, which is kind of interesting because when the in the early aughts when the Catholic Church began to be exposed for 
its many, many sex crimes, Pope John Paul II seemed to get an easy pass. And I'm not saying whether or not that that pass was right or wrong. I don't know all the facts behind how much Pope John Paul II himself knew. But he died in 2005, he, and he was virtually untouched with, with what otherwise brought the Catholic Church down. Now, I bring this up for a reason, and, and that is whatever conspiracy is going on in the Vatican in this movie in 1987 pales in comparison to the scandal that the Catholic Church experienced 15 years after this movie. And also, the movie does hammer home the fact that this is based on a true story. As a matter of fact, it's based in part, or I would probably say even inspired, by two books written by the real priest, Gabriella Morth. Specifically, the books An Exorcist Tells His Story and An Exorcist More Stories. And what's interesting is that at the very end of the film, there's an epilogue that said that Father Gabriel Amorth kept exercising demons from citizens until his death. And he wrote many books. And then the epilogue says those books were good. Well, obviously the books would have to be good. Otherwise they wouldn't make a movie out of his life. But my guess is that the books told more than the movie would tell. I'm interested in reading the books by Gabriella Morth, but this movie doesn't do his legacy a lot of credit, and it also doesn't really tell tell me why I should be rooting for the Vatican in this film when they do so many crimes that are arguably worse than a devil possessing a child. Let's be honest with that. Uh, let's be honest there. So for that reason, The Pope's Exorcist gets my rating of a strikeout. I do think that Russell Crowe is very good in this role, but I think the movie almost delves more into action and horror in a way that would probably appease those with shorter attention spans who are watching this movie, but probably wouldn't do very much of a service to the real father, Gabriel Amorth, who I am pretty sure was a better person than the rest of the people working in the Vatican. And it also doesn't really explain why the Vatican needed or still needs an exorcist. Why couldn't other priests from other Catholic parishes do the same thing? Why does the Vatican need an exorcist? And why do the people with whom Gabriella Morth exercised need him as opposed to other priests who who also specialized in exorcism? The movie doesn't say, and the movie also doesn't deviate from an otherwise very obvious classic film that came almost 50 years before it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Paint. This is the latest film starring Owen Wilson as Carl Nargle, who is a painter who is known as Vermont's number one public television painter, which probably means that he's Vermont's only public television painter. So maybe the number one part is relatively facetious. 
And of course, this character is obviously inspired by Bob Ross, but I'm still waiting for them to make a dramatized Bob Ross movie. And this feels more like it's kind of settling here, but I'll get into exactly what the film is about. Uh, Carl Nargle is Owen Wilson's character. He is a professional artist. He has the distinction of being on this uh, public radio, excuse me, this public television station in Burlington, Vermont, which is Vermont's largest city. But this movie makes you believe that it's just some small town in Vermont. In fact, I don't even think it was filmed in Burlington, Vermont, which is really too bad because it would have been a great setting and it would have probably done more of a service to Burlington, Vermont than the film ultimately gave it. But anyway... Carl Nargle is convinced that he has it all. He has a signature perm, a custom van, and fans hanging on his every stroke until a younger, better artist steals everything and everyone Carl loves. And the movie sort of delves into a bit of uh, Anchorman territory. It's written and directed by Britt McAdams, and Britt McAdams has previously directed a number of episodes of TV shows like Tosh O and Cat Williams' American Hustle, in addition to others. In terms of movies, I believe this is his second film. His first one was a movie he directed in 2006 called Trivia Town, which I haven't seen, but this is his return to the big screen after 17 years. And he also uh, wrote this movie, and this was uh, his, his feature film um, writing debut as well. And this movie does draw some comparisons to Anchorman, but whereas Anchorman was funny throughout, this movie is a little bit more deadpan, almost to a point of being dull. And I think that Owen Wilson is okay in this movie as Carl Nargle, but I do think his character is somewhat underdeveloped. You don't really know if he's from Vermont, and that would probably actually make a, a really good um, plot point or at least character development here. He, he still kind of has that signature Texan accent that he does, and if he was from Texas and relocated to Vermont, it would be great to know exactly why. And the movie has a running gag where he is painting nature scenes, very much like Bob Ross, but he's painting a famous mountain in Vermont, and he paints it over and over again. But my guess is even his most devoted fans, of which this movie makes you uh, hammers home that he does have, kind of um, don't take on the fact that he's painting basically the same thing over and over again. And the movie goes on to explain exactly why he does, but when the movie reveals why he does, it's not altogether very interesting. And there are some moments in this film of irony, uh, particularly where he goes on a rampage where he starts to Jackson Pollock, his previous paintings of this mountain in Vermont and then what results is somewhat ironic, but it's not really capitalized very well in terms of being funny in this film. And there are also things that Carl Nargle, Owen Wilson's character, does in this film that are not particularly 
well motivated, or at least not in terms of his character and the consistency of his character. I think it was actually cool that they made the the character Carl Nargle a, a womanizer. I, I thought that was an interesting touch, especially when he has an ex-girlfriend who's still producing his show by the name of Catherine, who's played by Michaela Watkins, formerly of Saturday Night Live. And she's dealing with both being loyal to Carl Nargle's show as well as keeping a distance from his uh, womanizing ways. And there was that other painter who obviously took some inspiration from Carl Nargle. Her name is Ambrosia, and she's played by Sierra Renee, who is making her feature film debut in this movie. She's actually had a lot of acting experience on stage, but this is actually her first on-screen appearance in this, uh, in a um movie, not to mention just anything on screen. She hasn't been in any previous TV shows or even movie shorts before this. But it's very easy when you look at her to see why she instantly becomes popular because I honestly think that if somebody who looks like Sierra Renee were to get on public television and all she did was read passages from the encyclopedia, based on how she would look, she would A, become an instant hit, and B, quickly move up the ranks from Burlington, Vermont to New York, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., or any of those other major metropolitan PBS affiliates. But I, I liked uh, Sierra Renee a lot. In fact, it, it's kind of interesting because Carl Nargle, Owen Wilson's character, becomes gradually so unlikable that you can definitely see why Ambrosia would be increasing in popularity herself. But I think that Owen Wilson does have does make Carl Nargle as sympathetic as he is obnoxious. But the laughs in this movie are few and far between. And not that the movie has to be a laugh riot with a gag every minute, but I do think that Carl Nargle could have been developed better as a character. And also, nobody seems to acknowledge, even though this movie takes place presumably in present day, that Carl Nargle is like Bob Ross. So either this takes place in a cinematic universe where Bob Ross doesn't exist, or it takes place in a universe where no one really knows who Bob Ross is, which I think is somewhat doubtful. And while Paint is an okay a comedy, it's still not great, but I do give Paint my rating of a checkout because I do think it is actually a more original film than than I actually expected, but I'm still waiting on a, the biopic of Bob Ross, which is still in development right now. I don't know if it's in production, but it's coming, especially since they made movies already dramatized movies about Julia child and Fred Rogers. It's inevitable given Bob Ross's enduring personality that they will make a film about him, but also B. I just feel as though paint could have been probably better structured, more focused story-wise, and even though it didn't have to be a laugh riot every 30 seconds, I did think that with more narrative focus, it could have been a funnier film.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a film that premiered on Netflix on April 13th, 2023. And this film is a short film. It's only 20 minutes long, but it has quite the impact. And the movie is called Weathering. It is written by and directed by an actress who is making her directorial debut, Megalyn Echikunwoke. And her name might not sound American, and it isn't. It's Nigerian, but she was actually born to a Nigerian father in Spokane, Washington. And she's best known for her acting, particularly in TV shows like 24 and That 70s Show. But as this movie demonstrates, she has quite the future ahead of her as a director, particularly of feature films. And just like any really good short film, I wanted to see this film actually be more elaborated into a, um, a a feature of at least an hour and 30 minutes. But the movie is about a journalist uh, whose name is Gemina, who's played by Alexis Louder, and she loses her baby after a miscarriage and nearly loses her life during labor. But she unravels amid disturbing visions and chilling attacks as she grieves alone at home. And it also deals not only with Gemina's grief over losing her child during labor, but it also deals with her complicated relationship with her mother, Serena, who's played by Alfre Woodard, and also an acquaintance of hers by the name of James, who's played by Jermaine Fowler. There are a few other actors who appear in this film, but it's mainly those three. And the, and the camera, as well as the focus, is mainly on Alexis Louder as she's dealing with both grief, paranoia, and also some sort of supernatural force that may be messing with her. And I'm not going to tell you how the movie ends, which is very hard for me to do because the movie is only 20 minutes long, but for a movie that's this short, it certainly packs quite a punch. I think that Alexis Louder is amazing in the lead role, and also the cinematography as well as the suspense is top-notch, and it shows that Megalyn Echikonwoke has a great future ahead as a director, and even if she's directing TV episodes, which is just fine, um, she certainly has quite a future ahead of her as a director and as a writer, and that's saying a lot considering this is her only film to date. It's not a feature film, but it's still a film that I would love to see expanded into a feature film because this movie, as as excellent as it was, had a lot of uh, questions that did not get answered for me. But that's really good because with a with a great movie, no matter what the length, always makes me want to see more, which is why I give Weathering my rating of a knockout. It is rated TVMA, so I'm not exactly sure if this is qualified for the Oscars for uh, best short film live action in the next year or so, but Oscar predictions aside, Weathering is certainly a very intense film and one that definitely kept me on the edge of my seat. And that's saying a lot for a film that's only about 20 minutes long. I think that Megan Echikonwoke has an amazing future as a director ahead of her. And I'd love to see more of Alexis Louder in other films as well, even though she's had a prolific career as an actress already, even though she's not a household name.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is not actually a movie. It's more like a made-for-TV docuseries, and it is in three parts. The three parts, when put together, have a total running time of 2 hours 55 minutes. And while I've made it a point to say that I review films on this show, not TV shows, and the reason I don't review TV shows is because... Some seasons are better than others, inevitably, and watching a whole season of a show is almost like, is exactly like watching a nine-hour movie, and frankly, I don't have that much time. However, I did have time to watch this limited miniseries, because limited miniseries, regardless of whether they're dramatized or docuseries, are fair game on words on film. The miniseries that I'm talking about now is American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon Bombing. And as I'm recording the show, it is April 15th, 2023, which is the 10-year anniversary of the Boston Marathon Bombing. And I lived through this. I was living in Boston at the time. Fortunately, I was nowhere near the finish line, which was where those two homemade pressure cooker bombs went off, killing three people and injuring many others. In fact, there was one man who lost both of his legs as a result of being injured in this explosion. And I, when this happened, I was shocked. And I, I remember, I didn't hear about it at first from listening to it on the radio or turning on the TV. I was driving along with my girlfriend at the time. I think we were getting something to eat at Dunkin' Donuts. And we were in one of the areas of Boston that was probably the least crowded. And she called her friend who was working in downtown Boston. And he was working that day, even though Patriot's Day is a holiday in Boston. And I think only in Boston, maybe in all of Massachusetts. But I remember him telling us that he was literally trapped in his building because the police barricaded it as a result of the bombing. And both my girlfriend at the time and I were shocked because who would bomb the Boston Marathon? The Boston Marathon at that point had been going on for over 100 years, and there had been no terrorist attacks at the uh, Boston Marathon ever because it was just so celebrated an event that I don't think anyone outside of law enforcement would have ever thought that someone would have planted a terrorist attack on the the marathon. I'm, I'm not saying that the police were necessarily naive, but... Certainly, it it had been going on for this long and nothing nefarious had happened like this. So I am very familiar with the story that American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon bombing, conveys through some dramatized footage, but mainly a lot of archive footage and also some interviews with many of the people who were involved in both the investigation as well as the reporting of the Boston Marathon bombing. And once the bombing happened, actually, there, the FBI became involved, including Special Agent Rick Delorier, who is, adverti- uh, who is advertised, interviewed extensively here, along with Police Commissioner Ed Davis. And Ed Davis became a, a national celebrity as a result of his handling of the Boston Marathon bombing. But it's not just those two who are interviewed. There are several other people who are interviewed as well, including Philip Martin of WGBH Boston, who has has had a rich history of investigative reporting himself. 
He reported earlier on the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and he was at the scene during the major events of the Boston Marathon bombing, not just the bombing itself, but also the shootout in Watertown of the suspects uh, Tamerlan and Jahar Zarnayev. Um, and that, of course, was the climax of semi-climax or one of the big climaxes of this story, as well as the relatively decent 2016 movie Patriot's Day, which I don't think I would count as the best representation or dramatic representation of the Boston Marathon bombing because I felt that was less telling the story about the Boston Marathon bombing and more Mark Wahlberg playing cops and robbers and almost kind of wishing that he was there helping people out. The best parts of that movie were when Mark Wahlberg was not in the movie. And I like Mark Wahlberg, but in Patriot's Day, I think he did more to distract from the story itself than he did to add to it. But the way that the Watertown shootout occurred in that film was very well dramatized, especially when you had actors like John Goodman and J.K. Simmons in the scenes themselves um, acting the, the way that they did, not to mention the actor who played Jahar Zarnayev, Alex Wolf. But in this film, it has a lot to, to follow after that scene from the movie Patriot's Day, but it sticks mainly to the facts. And it also tells me some other things that I didn't know about, well, a lot of parts uh, about the Boston Marathon bombing saga, but also about the shootout that happened in Watertown. In fact, one of the uh, examples came from Philip Martin, where he, he said that during that shootout, which lasted probably about 10 to 15 minutes, whereas the average police shootout lasts literally 10 to 30 seconds, there were bullets that were flying everywhere. And amazingly, even though there were civilians that were ordered by the Boston police to stay in their homes, there were no civilian casualties of any kind. Tamerlan Zarnayev did die during that shootout, although it, it amazingly wasn't from bullets, and you could probably um, read the story to figure it out, but there were stray bullets going everywhere. In fact, Philip Martin reveals in this movie that there was one stray bullet that narrowly missed a baby's head, and the bullet hole was literally within inches of that baby's head. It's really horrifying to think that a baby could have died, but it's miraculous to know that no civilian actually did die during that shooting. So this is a miniseries that hits very close to home to me because I did live in Boston when this happened. And I also remember when Deval Patrick, the governor at the time, made the unprecedented decision to have everyone who is not a police officer and is not a, a, a vital worker stay in their homes. For me, it was no problem for me to stay in my home. If the police, I, I didn't have any encounters with any police officers and I lived in Roslindale, which was one of the least affected parts of Boston. And I think after a couple of hours, I got out, got in my car and no police stopped me from doing so. But again, I do remember the, the lockdown that happened long before the necessary lockdown that the whole world had to go through during the pandemic that's still going on, but the worst is over. 
But I, I still remember that. I still remember watching the TV and also listening to a live streaming of the uh, police radio uh, when they found Jahar Zarnayev and he was not, he was found in a boat that was parked behind somebody's house. And he was actually writing his suicide note in blood as he was waiting there. And I was waiting for the police officers on that radio to say suspect in custody. And when they did, it felt like the whole city of Boston celebrated. But I'm just giving you my personal perspective of what it was like to live through that. So as I said, I acknowledge my bias because I lived in Boston at the time. I remember everything vividly. And I will remember this whole strange, surreal week. And also how much of a scumbag, to say the least, Jahar Zarnayev was. But he got probably he probably got off easy with uh, his punishment. Cause I also remember how they were considering the death penalty for him, which I didn't think was possible since Massachusetts doesn't have the death penalty, but I'm giving away a lot. What, what makes this story great? What makes this mini series great is the fact that they use a, a wealth of archive footage and use the dramatized parts of this docu series very well. In fact, one of the effects that I really liked from this uh, miniseries was when they dramatized some of the people who were either the bombers themselves or people who were associated with the bombers and their faces were pixelated out. At first, I thought there was something wrong with my TV as I was watching this docuseries, but that was a very good effect, particularly when you see that effect over and over again. I thought that was a nice and also appropriate artistic touch. So American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon bombing, I think is a docuseries that will take you in, even if you didn't experience the, even if you didn't live in Boston and experience it like I did. This whole saga that lasted five days, not including the capture of Jahar Zarnayev as well as his eventual sentencing later on. But I thought it was a lot more compelling than the Patriots Day film. And it gets my, an American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon bombing gets my rating of a knockout. While fully acknowledging my biases, I would say probably keeping my biases as far away from my critical eye as I could. I think it interviewed the right people. I think that it, it was amazing, not only the investigators and the journalists that they interviewed, but they also interviewed people who were directly affected by the Zarnayev brothers themselves. This had an astonishing amount of real journalism, and it came out at the right time before the 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing, and hopefully nothing like this will ever happen again in Boston or anywhere, but honestly, it will happen other places because we're just in a very tough spot right now with all these mass shootings that are going on and domestic, domestic and foreign terrorism. It's just the world in which we live right now, but I, I could go on about how thoughts and prayers aren't enough, but while these terrible things happen, at least we have journalists and investigators who are keeping the world as well-informed as, and as safe as they can. That's all I have to say.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is What's Coming Up Next? This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of April 17th through April 21st, 2023. And this is ju- this is just uh, movies that are subject to being released in theaters, although they may be simultaneously released in theaters and on streaming. But I will definitely let you know if that is the case. And there are a few select movies that are going to be released in theaters on April 18th, which is a Tuesday, which means they're either in limited release or you're most likely to see them on streaming. The first movie that is subject to being released in theaters on April 18th, that is on my list, is a movie that's called Ennisman, or Ennismen, E-N-Y-S. I'm not exactly sure how that is pronounced, but it is set in 1973 on an uninhabited island off the Cornish coast where a wild, excuse me, a wildlife volunteer's daily observations of a rare flower turn into a metaphysical journey that forces her, as well as the viewer, to question what is real and what is nightmare. This is directed by and written by Mark Jenkin, and the main star of this film is Mary Woodvine, who is only known as the volunteer. As a matter of fact, there, there are several actors in this film, but they're not known by names. They're only known by roles. So there's the volunteer, there's the boatman, there's the girl, there's the preacher, and so on and so forth. The movie stars Mary Woodvine, Edward Rowe, Flo Crow, and John Woodvine, who I believe is probably related to Mary Woodvine because that would be quite the coincidence if they had that last name in common, but they weren't related. It's not like their last names are Smith or Jones or anything. But Ennis Men is a movie that I might see. It, it sounds like a very interesting concept. I can't guarantee that I'm going to see it, but if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on April 18th is a movie that's called Accidental Truth UFO Revelations. This is a documentary, and it is about, well, here's the tagline. The truth can no longer be contained by those duty-bound to hide it. And honestly, I mean, a lot of the theories about uh, UFOs are mainly conspiracy theories, and there are far worse conspiracy theories than UFOs and potential alien life form. I've heard most of them, and the MAGA crowd definitely believes a lot of those really just twisted conspiracy theories. But this is a movie where... Officials who interact with the public regarding the UFO question openly acknowledge that they know things that they can't reveal. An accidental truth, UFO regulations, the reality of an advanced intelligence engaging with humanity becomes undeniably clear. And I don't really have any problem with knowing about alien life form. As long as they're not coming down here to kill us all, I'm okay. But this movie is, I guess, written by and directed by Ron James. The reason I say I guess written by is because I don't think people actually write documentaries. I mean, sure, they write the prologues and the epilogues and they edit it into a narrative form. But I don't know if that qualifies as writing per se. But the movie is also narrated by Matthew Modine. So this looks like an interesting film. 
I think it's one of those instances where you either believe the hype or you don't, but it's a movie that I might see, and if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. The final movie that is subject to being released in theaters and maybe on streaming on April 18th is a movie that's called The Reaper Man. The Reaper Man is a movie that is about a grieving wife who summons a dark spirit with an insatiable desire for revenge. This is another movie where the director is also the writer, and the movie doesn't have anybody who's particularly well-known, but the stars of the movie include Harley Lauder, Keenan Walker, K.J. Baker, and DeAndre Grafton. These aren't actors that I know, but it looks like an interesting kind of movie, certainly along the realm of Rosemary's Baby. And the director and the writer, by the way, I forgot to mention, was Jason Lockridge. It looks like an interesting film. Certainly, the poster looks scary. If I see this film, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And on April 20th, 2023, which is a Thursday, there's one movie that's subject to being released in theaters, and the movie is called Padre Pio. Amazingly enough, this is actually an American film, and it stars Shia LaBeouf. And it follows Roman Catholic saint Padre Pio in his early years. The director of this film is Abel Abel Ferrara, and the movie co-stars, in addition to Shia LaBeouf, Christina Chiriak, Marco Leonardi, and Asia Argento. Asia Argento I actually do know from a few movies, and actually Asia Argento plays a character by the name of Tall Man, even though Asia Argento is a woman. Hmm, I don't know. But it looks like an interesting, intriguing film, and certainly Shia LaBeouf, while he might have done some things to sabotage his career as an A-lister, has taken has had some very uh, wise choices in his roles, particularly as he is delving into darker and darker territory. So it's a film that I might see. I can't guarantee it. But if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And then we get to April 21st, 2023, which is a Friday. And there are a number of new films that are coming out in theaters or are subject to being released in theaters. The first one, which is probably going to be the biggest one, is a movie that's called Evil Dead Rise. This movie is a sequel to the Evil Dead movie from 2013, which in and of itself was a was a remake of the Evil Dead movie from 1983 that was directed by then low-budget filmmaker Sam Raimi, who has come a long, long way from his low-budget directorial efforts way back when. The, the remake from 2013, which I didn't actually get to see, was directed by Fede Alvarez. And this movie, Evil Dead Rise, is directed by and written by Lee Cronin. Now, it does have a disadvantage in that it is a sequel to a film that came out 10 years ago, but it has an advantage where it is a sequel to a remake that came out, or rather, to a very beloved cult favorite franchise. And I've seen the original Evil Dead movies, even though I didn't see the remake, and I absolutely loved them. But... The Evil Dead movie from 10 years ago, which I admittedly didn't see, seemed to take the Evil Dead a lot more seriously than Sam Raimi took it. Because I think Sam Raimi, even though he directed a straight horror film, was certainly very aware of 
the campiness of his premise. But also, he took that camp, uh, that camp to another level in Evil Dead 2, and even to another level in the third movie in that trilogy, Army of Darkness, which is another film that I absolutely thought was hilarious, and Bruce Campbell, to me, is an amazing comic actor. But Evil Dead Rise is a twisted tale of two estranged sisters whose reunion is cut short by the rise of flesh-possessing demons, thrusting them into a primal battle for survival as they face the most night the most nightmarish version of family imaginable. So I don't watch movie previews, but the poster of this film, which shows this zombie-like woman clutching this family to her chest and giving this really uh, evil smile to the camera is creepy enough. Don't hang that poster in my bedroom because I will not sleep for weeks, even if you took that poster down. (laughs) Please don't do that. Please don't break into my apartment and put that poster up. Take anything you want, just don't put that poster up. But anyway, Evil Dead Rise is subject to being released in theaters on April 21st, 2023. This is a movie that I will likely see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. There's another movie that's coming out on April 21st, 2023, probably not in as wide release as Evil Dead Rise, but this is a movie that is not only a horror film, but is also a comedy and drama, and the movie is called Bo is Afraid, and this is a movie that is directed by and written by Ari Aster, who made his debut back in 2018 with the movie Hereditary, which I not only thought was the best horror film of 2018, I thought it was the best film of 2018, period. And even thinking about the film still scares the living daylights out of me. As a matter of fact, quick anecdote, I went to see this film as a matinee the weekend it came out in 2018. I saw it in a theater with two other people whom I didn't know, And I was thankful for two things. Number one, that I saw it during the day. And number two, that when I exited the theater, it was light out. Because I don't think I would have been able to handle going out of the theater with it being dark out. But I also wanted to just shake one of the people who was in the theater with me and go, what the hell was that we just saw? But in a really good way, because it was definitely a bone-chillingly terrifying film. Probably the scariest film I'd seen in a long time up to that point, and I see a lot of horror films. But Ari Aster followed Hereditary up with Midsummer, which I thought was okay. It, it definitely had, in my opinion, a case of sophomore slump, but I admired it for its originality. I just thought that some of the characters in the film, particularly the main characters, did some really, really out-of-character things that kind of, I think, compromised the intensity as well as the suspense of what otherwise could have been that film. But I do credit it for it being original. But here, Ari Aster has the advantage of having many great actors, including some that are Academy Award winners, co-starring in this film. The star of this film is Joaquin Phoenix, and this, I believe, is his first film since Joker, for which he won an Academy Award previously. But the other actors in this movie include Parker Posey, Academy Award nominee Amy Ryan, Michael Gandolfini, Nathan Lane, and Richard Kind, amongst others. 
And this is a film that I will definitely make it a point to see. And I've, I've been telling you so much about Ari Aster's repertoire that I forgot to tell you what this movie is about. So this is about a mild-mannered but anxiety-ridden man whose name is Bo, and he's played by Joaquin Phoenix. And following the sudden death of his mother, he confronts his darkest fears as he embarks on an epic Kafka-esque odyssey back home. And the poster of this film shows Joaquin Phoenix at different ages, it looks like. It looks like there are four different um, versions of Joaquin Phoenix, all of whom are of different ages, as I said. And two of them are undoubtedly Joaquin Phoenix. The other two are good, I think, um, graphic representations of what Joaquin Phoenix looked like as a younger man when he was still acting and was known as Leif Phoenix. Interestingly enough, uh, a lot of people don't know that. And also what he could look like as an old man if he lives that long. And who knows what will happen in the future. But Bo is Afraid is a movie that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on April 21st, 2023, is a movie that's called Chevalier. And Chevalier is based on the true story of composer Joseph Bologna, um, who is also known... Well, actually, the, there's, the, the way this synopsis is written is a little confusing. But uh, I guess Joseph Bologna's real name was Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who is the illegitimate son of an African slave and a French plantation owner, who rises to heights in French society as a composer before an ill-fated love affair. The movie is directed by Stephen Williams with a script and a story by Stefani Robinson. Amazingly, it's not based on a book, and you would think that a movie like this, which takes on a very heavy and a hot topic, would be. But the role of the Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint-Georges is played by an actor by the name of Kelvin Harrison Jr., who I have seen in other films. And the movie also co-stars Cyan Clifford, Samara Weaving, Lucy Boynton, Minnie Driver, and other such actors. This is a movie that looks like it could pack a punch, albeit with the crowd that loves Masterpiece Theater. But it looks like an intriguing movie, and it may be capitalizing upon the success of Bridgerton. But unlike Bridgerton, which tells sort of a fantastical version of the kinds of bourgeoisie, high-class stories that Jane Austen made famous, Chevalier is based on a true story. So I'd give it the benefit of the doubt. I, I don't know if it's intentionally capitalizing on the, upon the success of Bridgerton, but it's a movie that I will see. I will decide for myself, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show or a future show. And the last movie I'm going to tell you about is a movie that's called The Covenant, or more specifically, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. This movie is, of course, directed by Guy Ritchie. Why it's called Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, I don't exactly know. And Guy Ritchie is certainly a very prolific director. Like M. Night Shyamalan, some of his movies are fantastic and others of his movies are lacking. But this movie follows U.S. Army Sergeant John Kinley, who's played by Jake Gyllenhaal, and Afghan interpreter Ahmed, who's played by Dar Salim. 
What it follows them doing, I don't exactly know, but it's probably about the war in Afghanistan that recently ended controversially a few years ago. And the movie also co-stars, in addition to those two actors I just mentioned, Anthony Starr and Johnny Lee Miller, amongst other people. This movie looks particularly interesting. It may look to be Guy Ritchie's best film, but I don't know that yet. It's not the first time that Jake Gyllenhaal has played a U.S. soldier, so some people might dismiss it based on some of Jake Gyllenhaal's previous films, but it's a movie that I might give a chance, and I, if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.